Hey, what's going on? This is Jeremy Thone, Marketing Director of 3PL Systems and host of 3PL Live. Excited to share an interview with Jeremy Muir. He is a lawyer over at Minter Ellison Rudd Watts in New Zealand. I actually met Jeremy when I was living out in Austin. I attended a blockchain event by Coindesk and met Jeremy actually at the event. We get into a super interesting conversation about NFTs, what is value as far as money goes, Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, all the crypto space and kind of some of his thoughts with regards to legal aspects of it. And we also get into talks about tokenization of real estate. So it's a very fascinating conversation. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Jeremy, uh, thanks for coming on to 3PL Live. We actually connected through the Consensus Conference, a blockchain conference by Coindesk over in Austin, Texas. I guess for those, I know that you're a lawyer in the blockchain space. So for those people that don't know you, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Hi, Jeremy. Snap. Yeah, I'm a lawyer based in Auckland, New Zealand. I work for a law firm, Minter Allison Rudd Watts. We're based in New Zealand, but also part of the Minter Allison Legal Group, which is one of the biggest firms in Australia and has a few other offices scattered around the world. So within that, my practice is a traditional uh, financial services investment funds practice. So we set up venture capital funds, we set up savings products. And then over the last sort of 10 years, that's for me has gone heavily into fintech online platforms, uh, everything from equity crowdfunding to peer-to-peer lending to uh, investment sort of Robin Hood style platforms. And then about five years ago, we wrote a paper called Tokens of Our Affection, where we looked at the the universe of of crypto coins and tokens and what New Zealand law would make of them. And at that point, we didn't have any clients in the space at all, but just a a sort of a heated interest. So we put that out into the universe and um, Karma suddenly brought us back a large number of clients. So that's now become a a large part of our practice. And we we act for most of the, the key players, certainly in the New Zealand ecosystem. Very, very cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. So how did you get into crypto? Like what what caused the bug on your end? Yeah, it was really just, you know, watching from a distance, um, you know, the rise of Bitcoin and, and people starting to talk about it, but really coming off a very low, low base. Uh, I mean, as a firm, we've always been interested in technology uh, and I had been sort of going, diverting that way through sort of the the, the rise of fintech and, and online platforms. So this did seem to be the next the next step of in an increasingly digital world. How do we move value from person to person in a, on a more efficient set of rails? And crypto seemed to be the the missing link. There's a really interesting interview. I don't know if you've seen it by McKinsey with Mark Andre Andreessen um, a couple of weeks ago where he talks about Web3 as being sort of the other half of the internet that we didn't know how to build when we built the first half. Mm-hmm. So I think both initially and over time, that's kind of um, evolved into the way I, I like to think about this with you know cryptocurrencies being digital money for a more digital future, NFTs being digital ownership, uh, digital property, DeFi being you know the web of services around these things. These are new tools to do the same things we've always wanted to do, but doing it in a, a new place. Yeah, it makes sense. It seems like a lot of the times too, like back in the day, a lot of the value from like Web2 was kind of given to like corporations. And it seems a lot of the value now kind of goes back to the end user, whether it's like a musician, an artist with an NFT. Like I know that like on Solana's network, 
the artists will make a royalty like off of every NFT that they sell. So it is very interesting, like this concept of like giving the value back to the users. Is that is that part of it as, as you see it as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although, and it's a fascinating tension to see which way it's going to go. There was a really interesting article by in Forbes actually after South by Southwest, which was also in Austin, but a few months before right we were there census, which I've never been to. But <laughs> uh, this year there was a Kiwi company there called Non Fungible Labs, or the people behind Fluff World. I don't know if you've come across Fluffs. I have done kind of digital digital bunny rabbit NFTs. Oh, cool! Uh, which Sounds cool, but actually what they're doing is they are really working very hard to build out infrastructure behind these digital bunny rabbits. So yes, they are beautifully rendered sort of three-dimensional wavy fur rabbits that come with their own sort of musical soundtrack, especially created for each one. But what they are trying to really do is build, uh, is allow people to use the own the full intellectual property rights that, that come with these, use them as avatars, use them in other contexts, create new content around them. And they're very focused on the, the creator as owner model of the internet. They had a, a display at or, or a zone at South by Southwest, which is one of the hits apparently of the festival. Sadly, I wasn't there, but I've heard lots of stories where they really made a, made a splash. You have your bunny and there are new things that actually come with it too. They're now doing burrows that are sort of little pre-metaverse type environments. You can get burrows designed by Snoop Dogg and, uh, you know, all of that good sort of crypto native <laughs> stuff. But they, they really are very focused on the decentralization rather than the centralization Web3 dream. And this Forbes article actually picked them out as sort of in a battle for the future of the internet between big tech, so, you know, the meta metaverse of or the Zuckerverse versus these plucky upstarts from New Zealand and others like them who are trying to build the sort of decentralized, non-big tech creator, non-walled garden creator own version of the of the, the digital future. So it's, you know, that's that's a, a big fight. It'll be interesting to see whether big tech wins or whether uh, there is a place for plucky upstarts and for all of us or whether we're all just happy to 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 live in, in Mark Zuckerberg's version of the, the future. That was really interesting how I know that we both sat in on that that speak that keynote of Neil Stevenson and uh, Jaron, the, the guy that created VR. So I thought that that was really interesting too, listening to those people talk about that. You know, that word came up with like 20 something years ago, mm. but then Zuckerberg kind of just claimed it as his own for, for Meta. But I think that that also kind of pushed a lot of like entrepreneurs into the space maybe like it got a lot of other people excited since she had such a big name to like start creating like other projects and it seemed like a, it kind of rallied a lot of other projects like Axie Infinity around that same time yeah. and so that that was also really interesting but do you do you see it as like with crypto like do you think there's gonna be like many players or do you think it's just gonna be Zuck? It's so hard so hard to tell and I, you know I'm just a humble lawyer from New Zealand so I'm <laughs> I'm not going to read the future. You know, it, it, there are scenarios where if you get big tech leading, um, maybe that opens the way and clears the path for um, amazing things to happen with smaller creators. There's another great New Zealand company called um, Vivi or Ecomi behind it, which is, does digital collectibles. They were basically doing doing NFTs before they were called NFTs, and they license intellectual property from Marvel. 
James Bond, various movie studios and other things and create beautifully rendered three-dimensional digital collectibles, including with augmented reality. So you can look on your phone and see your um, Back to the Future one-to-one size DeLorean parked in your driveway, take a photo with your phone. It's a really cool company. What they how they have got mass scale is by operating through the Apple App Store. The, the big tech are not, not entirely a, a let's take over everything story. It is actually, uh, they create the, the means by which people consume. So it'd be really interesting to see which way it goes. And I'm hugely excited by you know, what Neil Stevenson's announced around bringing his unique vision to create a, a metaverse environment. So I think hopefully we get a future which has lots of options, and ideally, they are interoperable and people can move seamlessly between one, from one to another. Yeah, that, that whole part was really cool. I, I saw a post that you actually did also on the guy that got the, I forget his name, but the guy that got the Luna tattoo. And he yes. he, he, he basically had that humble realization. The, the I, yeah. yeah, I I had the same thing where I never thought that like something like Tara, as big as Tara, and I really liked Do Kwan too. And I thought he was a great speaker really smart guy but it was interesting like you can't really you don't know sometimes what's going to happen and like it's it is interesting to be like you have to be really humble sometimes I think when some of these new technologies are are developing I do want to also ask you a little bit about like um, your thoughts on some of these things happening with like Voyager I don't know if you've been following on that and like Celsius some of these CFI kind of platforms I think Mm. people get confused and think of crypto as as that as like it's even though like crypto has this ethos of being completely decentralized but then like you end up with like some some players that have this sort of contagion, I guess, from like lending out to like three years capital and that fund crashed and that caused a lot of drama. Yeah. So I'm just curious, could you kind of untangle like, I guess, like the decentralized nature or nature of crypto versus some of these other things that people might get confused with? To a degree, it's, it's all pretty confusing. I think, and I, and I think this is a reasonably widely held view that centralization and decentralization is a spectrum rather than um, two unique states. Often things will can begin in a centralized fashion because it's easier to build and iterate and change as you if you control certain aspects of the basic sort of framework rather than, you know, obviously Bitcoin is the at the one end of the completely decentralized there may be you know nobody even knows who is at the center or someone probably knows but we don't versus things which are actually more held in and controlled also centralization is a way to obviously make money and that's an incentive to build something so a lot of these DeFi um, or really were more CFI at the centralized end of the spectrum to enable people both to build them, to make money out of them, at least originally. And some may have the intention to become more decentralized over time, but they didn't really get there yet. And I mean, you're going to, this is this is cutting edge or even bleeding edge stuff. So you're going to have some failures along the way. And I mean, I look at the comparison between something like just in stable coin world, Tether versus Terra USD, you know, Tether, has ridden its luck to a degree. And, you know, I don't have any skin in the game inside knowledge being pretty clear that Tether has not necessarily always been as had the degree of asset backing perhaps than Portal was stated. But because they've managed to get to a certain size, you can actually start to backfill and create and, and get to a degree where you are more solid. 
Whereas Terry USD, I'm sure, was trying to, to run its ride its luck, build quickly and get to somewhere where it could be solid, but didn't quite make it. And a lot of the problem in that world, actually, you know, I'm old enough that I can look back to things sort of 20 odd years ago. I went and worked in Guernsey in the Channel Islands, which is an offshore finance site like the Cayman Islands, but in Europe, if you like. And one of the first uh, jobs I did as a young lawyer there was to update a brochure about how our law firm was great at setting up what were called split capital funds, which were funds that offered different tranches of notes that paid different returns, including sort of high yield ones with more risk at the top and low yield ones, supposed less risk. But it turned out that the way that they were getting the, the low risk return at the bottom was by investing in other split cap funds that were really just circling around each other investing in the same thing. And ultimately, the first sign of pressure on one of those causes contagion, and they all fell over. Sounds a bit like uh, what's been going on in, in DeFi. So it just goes to show there's nothing new under the sun, and these things, you know, follow patterns. So hopefully it's a clearing out of the, the sorting the wheat from the chaff, and we get the, the good players survive. Yeah, it's interesting. I noticed that Sam bakeman fried from FTX started bailing out a lot of these companies or started offering lines of credit, I believe, to like BlockFi and to, to Voyager. So it was just, I this is like one of my first years kind of studying the market or second year, I guess I could say. But it was just really interesting to see like these players that you wouldn't think would ever in your mind, like, I don't know what it is, but you just think that they're so big that they wouldn't fail potentially. And then mm. it just to see like it all go down so quickly, it was just very fascinating. And the amount of like leverage in the market too. Like I'm, I would say like I'm a little bit like of a, a newer trader. So I, I haven't really studied the stock market too much. I'm assuming the stock market has these leverage leveraging going on as well, right? Yeah, there's a really fascinating book about a hedge fund um, called Long-Term Capital Management, which basically got huge and then blew up spectacularly just about bringing down the world financial system oh, wow. um, to the extent that they had to be actually rescued by, you know, central central bankers around the world had to meet and come up with a rescue plan because it had actually got so big that it was a, a systemic risk to fail. And the book called When Genius Failed, because this hedge fund was set up to run certain algorithmic and other types of um, investment processes. And amongst the founding team were at least two Nobel Prize winning economists, literally the people who had written the model for pricing stock options. Wow. Um, so really, you know, the best of the best, brightest, and therefore could raise an enormous amount of money and made these huge bets, vast amounts of money under management. And I think it was the one of the Russian crises where their position, they couldn't, their positions kept getting more and more out of the money to the extent that they couldn't continue to meet their margin calls and continue to run the, the bet. So they just could not hold out long enough. But actually, if they had held out longer, everyone would have made a whole lot of money. The world economy couldn't risk it. But it just goes to show that you, you can go bust even if you're not necessarily wrong. You're just wrong for the time that you're trying to do it in or outside events conspire against you. So I think we, we, you know, we're seeing a lot of that in markets with very clever people doing things which will stack up in the right set of conditions, but when things change, they may not be able to hold out long enough to, to come right. And I think, you know, what FTX is doing is interesting and partly, partly I'm sure they're trying to sort of stick fingers in the, the, the dike to stop contagion risk and, you know, everyone deciding that this is not a, not a good area to be in. 
and also maybe it's an opportunity to rescue the ones who are actually worth rescuing and are just sort of caught in the, the wrong tide. Yeah, that's totally fair. I, I completely agree with that. I feel like Sam's in there probably looking at this. If he doesn't fix some of it or help out while he can, like it might cause the whole entire market to potentially not exist or get, I don't know if it'll ever get to that point, but it just seems like if he didn't step in and help out, then it's it's just beneficial for the market and for his company. And everyone needs to help each other grow, it seems like, at this stage in, in the game. It's a fascinating market. How many different tools? It seems like this is like kind of like a new set of tools as well. Like you had a post recently that that mentioned that crypto is not a single thing, good or bad, but a set of tools for the digital world. I thought that was really interesting. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? You're, you're meaning like the blockchain part? Yeah, I mean, this, and this is this is thinking that, you know, I've come to over slowly over five years, although it was kind of there in the beginning, but I think the, the use cases continue to rise. That, you know, all, all these, these blockchain-based tools or ideas and products are all just different ways of, of people interacting, people buying stuff, people owning stuff people showing their creative their creativity in a way that can actually be remunerated fairly and you know the fact that the digital tokens are programmable and then they move on these sort of seamless rails and you can disintermediate a lot of lawyers and a lot of people's shuffling paper around i mean that's got to be the way that if we look ahead to the the future that we've all seen on the movies or you know what the world's going to be in 10, 15 years' time, at least you know for part of the world. There's a lot of uh, people that need to be sort of brought along on the journey. How are things actually going to interact in that digital environment? It, it will need to be done e- easily and seamlessly. And these are digital t- digital native tools that actually work work fast. Uh, is it the only way of doing things? No, I have a lot. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for some of the people that say that. You know, sometimes blockchain is a, a solution looking for a problem. That there are ways using traditional tools that you can solve particular problems more efficiently than using a, a blockchain solution, and that's fine. It's just another set of tools, another way of doing things. The good use cases will will catch on and and be cemented, and will eventually disappear under the bonnet, and no one will talk about crypto or blockchain anymore in the way that we don't sort of talk about wow cloud computing is really exciting or gosh the internet who knew you know it will disappear under under the bonnet of the car and people will just drive from a to b um, doing stuff happily along the way it does seem like blockchain is like kind of an ethos too it's like this open decentralized networks these where the value is given mainly back to the users. And it seems like it's a lot of very smart people too that are working on a lot of these problems, like Charles Hoskinson with like wanting to like, you know, bank the unbanked and things of that nature. And then also uh, the guy from El Salvador, the president of their using blockchain, which I guess was some people look down upon it. I thought it was interesting. You know, I don't think that anyone could have really seen that we're going to end up with a war with Russia and then, Maybe sure. the money, the money printing thing, you could have potentially seen because of all the quantitative easing that was happening in the, the U.S. economy. But I think it was it was an interesting thing. All these different factors that we ended up in this situation where the market really did shift quite hard in the last like um, six months. But I think that the the people in the space are very interesting. Like I think that like you know the Gavin Woods of the world, the Vitalik Buterin's, all those people are yeah. just just very interesting people that are just living their they, they're kind of artists in some sort of way where they look at 
things differently, like how we're going to interact. I think, and I agree with you. I think that a lot of people are like, well, what's the use case? What is like the one use case for blockchain? And like you said, it's not necessarily one thing. I think that the use cases are still coming out. And one thing that you posted as well is that real estate guide. And I Ooh. thought like the tokenization of real estate seems like something that going back to like paper pushing, it seems like that would have a lot of uses for like, maybe you transfer Bitcoin and then a smart contract basically unlocks the keys to your house or something of that nature. I don't know how all that looks. And, but do you see, do you kind of envision yeah. maybe some of this stuff happening? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are a couple of different aspects to it. One is that obviously one of the, the advantages of, of blockchain technology is, is around having trustless systems. You can build a land title register, for example, where you are not required to trust the government to maintain it. If you live in a country where perhaps you don't trust the government. In New Zealand, we, we have a relatively advanced digital land title system. We generally trust the government it all kind of works fine. So, you know, maybe that's not, there's no sort of a real pain point there that needs to be solved in terms of trust. In certain African countries where they have started, or South American, where they have started looking at blockchain-based title systems, it kind of makes more sense. Uh, a, you maybe you're not having to replace something which works well with something new and, you know, any change creates risk. So you might be able to sort of build something fresh which works and you don't have to trust whoever's the government at the time as to whether they can take your property or not. You can trust the integrity of the system, which is decentralized and therefore harder to attack at any point. So I, I get that. But what I am actually almost more excited about, and I we had dinner last, uh, like two nights ago, with a couple of friends, one of whom is an architect, and we were talking about NFTs and what, what's the future, you know, how, how could this be relevant to an architect? And, you know, I showed him my VV digital collectible of the one sixth size DeLorean from Back to the Future with the augmented reality, where you can sort of zoom inside, the, you can tap and open the door, zoom inside, see, see the flux capacitor whirling and various things. And I, I, I always love that because I look at that and I think, well, what if I was an, arch an architect and actually my, the plan for my house was actually part of the, the title to the house included, because it's programmable, a three-dimensional rendering of the entire house. So if I wanted to sell it, A, I could sell it on crypto rails, put it on an exchange where everything happens seamlessly and easily and the title to my house moves from wallet A to wallet B. Not only that, someone who wanted to buy it could actually open the digital rendering walk plant it using either augmented reality or virtual reality, walk through it without having to physically visit it. I mean, surely that stuff's going to happen, right? And why can't it all be built into the concept of a house is represented by an NFT, which includes the house itself in a virtual rendering. That sort of stuff gets me quite. That actually sounds really interesting because you could kind of see the proof of like where the house was like on the blockchain to see all that that data and then yeah getting that kind of virtual version of the house also sounds interesting yeah and not a, not <laughs> only that how about how about so an architect the architect was saying you know architects we're like painters as well we design this amazing house we we get paid and that's it so that house then sells maybe goes up in value we don't get a, a cut of the pie every time it sells in future just like a painter who sells something to a gallery gets paid a hundred dollars the gallery then sells it for $1,000, the next person sells it for $10,000, and the artist is, is left out. 
actually with programmable NFTs. If the, the title to the artwork is through an NFT with a smart contract, the artist can clip the ticket on every subsequent sale. What if the architect could do the same every time the house was sold? Wow. You know, they've, they've created it effectively or they've, they've created part of the value. Why shouldn't they share on an ongoing basis? That's actually a really fascinating question because, yeah, architects could make a lot more money and get that it's not no longer like it would no longer be like a one and done type situation. Yeah. yeah and so maybe it, they would, it would cost less because they would be earning earning their return over time, like many of us do. Yeah. And or many I, businesses can. I read about that one company too, Audius, that was trying to take kind of like a Spotify thing where they were kind of giving the value more to the to the musicians instead of like because I heard that they only get like a couple cents like it's like pennies basically when you know someone streams their music so that yeah so that seems like something that needs to definitely be disrupted as well like you know that doesn't really seem fair for like the artist or the musician in that particular setup so um, I know that Audius is trying to solve part of those problems but you could see it like a lot of these creative fields it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with like these nfts I, I didn't really expect NFTs either to like blow up as much as they did like last year. I actually got into it for a little bit myself and I was buying some like degenerate pandas and some random things. And it was really fun. Like you get, you get like hooked, like where you're like, you know, you get excited for like the airdrop and you're trying to compete to get on there to like buy the thing when it comes out. So it was, it was a really interesting like community. Cause a lot of the, yeah. a lot of people like live in like discord channels and like the whole you know, like everyone's sort of hyped up and talking in those channels. And it's just, it's very interesting. I don't know if you, uh, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it goes to what is value because people can say that my digital JPEG of a, a bored looking monkey has no value because someone can copy and paste it all of the above, but maybe I get part of my value. The value that I paid for that comes from the bragging rights I get from owning it, the fact that I'm part of a community, all of those things, which is not to say that we don't create bubbles around some of those asset classes from time to time. And, and that's part of the fun of, of investing is understanding when things are in a bubble and maybe you buy something because you want it, not because you think it's going to actually, you're going to resell it. A lot of what crypto can do is create new forms of value. And I'll give you another example of that, which is, is a great company that we're working with in New Zealand called Toha, which is actually creating a, an impact investment marketplace. So effectively, it's really hard to explain, but one of the concepts might be to encourage regenerative agriculture on farms. So farms replanting with native forests to sort of help save the environment and climate change. How do you incentivize a farmer to do that? You have to create some value for them by doing so. So what Toha is doing is they will create a structure whereby people can loan money to the farmer to do the planting, regenerate that. And the, what the farmer will do is actually measure, create measurable data out of that. So has nitrogen in the soil been reduced by a certain amount or otherwise? That data is then packaged up into a valuable piece, which can then be sold to, say, a bank in order to back their claims that they are lending to socially conscious farmers. So you're actually creating a new piece of value around the monetization of that data, which therefore is actually encouraging someone to do something which is a social good. So, you know, I think that's a fascinating concept and, and a lot of what's happening in crypto on that sort of social impact side revolves I love that. around that. 
I love that. It's that's really interesting. That is really interesting too. This whole this whole concept of value and like what value really is, and even like that. I remember seeing that thing where the there was that guy that sold two, I guess, pizzas for ten thousand Bitcoin, and it's something like two hundred million dollars in today's terms. But I think at that time, guy just wanted to see if like Bitcoin was actually tradable, and then then yeah. we got then we got to this point where Bitcoin hit like what like sixty nine thousand dollars. So I I think that. What do you is that that also is kind of like this case of it's just basically what the market sees the value because of like the economics of how it was set up and I guess that you know assuming that it can't be disrupted with like the twenty one million units so that is also really interesting. Do you think that if there's some sort of spook though that causes that I don't ever think Bitcoin will go to zero, but now like after the terror thing, like my mind is like a little bit more paranoid, I guess. So I'm I'm just like. I don't think that it'll ever hit zero, but like it is possible, obviously. But do you think that the reason it yeah. holds holds that value is mainly because the community and like the amount of people willing to step in and and buy it when it goes down? Sure, I think that's that's part of it. And you know, it's a bigger need a bigger brain than mine to figure out, you know, what the actual value of Bitcoin is. But it, it does seem to me that it has a certain degree of value that you can attribute to it because of its design. I mean, that, that's the whole point of Bitcoin is it's the elegance of its design and the fact that it is distributed and therefore is remote from challenge. That actually gives it its status as a sort of a form of digital gold that can be held and may be of use for payments in future. It creates the comparison to fiat currency, which is, of course, subject to the whims of governments in terms of printing more money. And with Bitcoin, you know that there will only be that certain market cap. So it's, it, is, it has value based on its design. Quite exactly what that value is, I couldn't tell you, but you know, the, it has the value that people will attribute it at that point. It's different from something which is like Dogecoin or something which can be ultimately, uh, this is you know, far more interesting in, in some ways in respect of whether it has value or not because it doesn't have those design features which actually give Bitcoin its, its stability and, and use as an inflation hedge or otherwise, because it can always just print more of it. But if people ascribe it a certain value, who's to say that they're wrong? Who's to say that you know one type of car with a particular brand name is actually worth more than another type of car, which also gets you from A to B, but doesn't have the cool name? 100%. Yeah, and it's interesting too on that spectrum. Like when you go to like Dogecoin, they're printing something like ten thousand coins per second or per minute or something like that. So like it's completely like the opposite of the spectrum of like you know the supply side of things. So I, I thought that was really interesting. And then I think what also happens like when you start studying like Bitcoin is like you start realizing like hey, that when the government does print money, it's not it's definitely a bad thing because it's just making the inflation in our economy go up way higher, which is basically creating bubbles in like housing. And other sectors of like industries and it's it's just really weird because i never really thought about some of these things i feel like until i really started studying bitcoin and learning about like monetary policy and things of that nature so that's you yeah. go down that rabbit hole it's a great, you... great gateway drug to uh, <laughs> understanding how the economy really works 100 I mean, the interesting thing the other so the other aspect of the other interesting comparison is say bitcoin compared to when facebook at, Facebook and friends decided to launch the Libra cryptocurrency, which then morphed into DM and is kind of sitting in abeyance. You know, everyone thought, my God, that's really going to take over the world, you know, because Facebook exists. They know people, know, you know, everyone knows and the other players, 
Um, everyone knows where they live, so to speak. They were certainly capable of being leaned on by governments um, who were worried about their devaluation of their fiat currency by way of a, a digital alternative which people would hold. That's why you know banks, uh, central banks are looking at CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, to ensure that they have um, a piece of this new pie rather than being displaced by digital currencies. But because Bitcoin you know, you can't lean on Satoshi. Um, you have to find him, her, or they first. You know, is is a different kettle of fish from DM, Libra, and most other coins. That's the really interesting thing about crypto in general, too, is that like if um, the U.S. decides, hey, screw crypto, we want to shut this down, it's not going to stop. You know, other people are just going to go. It's just going to open it up in other places, like you know, all around the world. That's what's really interesting about this technology that you can't really stop something if it could be everywhere. So I, I think that uh, it seems like the U.S. is trying to make some sort of legislation now towards this industry. But what do you, I know that you're a lawyer, so you probably look at some of this stuff, but what do you, do you think that the U.S. is going to build some infrastructure? It looks like they're trying to figure out how to deal with some of these digital assets. Yeah. And it's, it's hard, right? I mean, I'm, so I'm a, a special advisor to in New Zealand, we have a, a government parliamentary select committee which is looking at cryptocurrencies at the moment. So that's a you know a group of members of parliament who are trying to decide whether we should do anything to to regulate or otherwise. And myself and another academic, Alex Sims, are special advisors. So we're writing a report for the committee at the moment where we'll try and make some hopefully helpful suggestions about things that we can do to both protect people and allow for innovation and enhancement and new ideas and systems to come through. And it's it's very, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if you try and whack-a-mole, regulate something over here, alternatives will pop up in other jurisdictions. If you make it hard to do business in the US, people will go and do business elsewhere. You have uncertainty um, that just makes, increases the cost of doing business or forces people to make decisions which are not necessarily consumer focused so it's it is hard i think um the us is certainly there is now a solid core of people who just want some sensible guidance rather than sort of from the early days it has appeared that the securities and exchange commission has tried to regulate by enforcement rather than by guidance so basically not telling people what you should do to get it right because they don't know yet but just will tell you if you get it wrong and that that's that's really hard to work with so you know i always would encourage everyone to keep sort of keep asking the politicians and the regulators to try and come up with sensible approaches and yeah. sometimes that's sort of leaving well enough alone uh, and just trying to sort of mop people up who do bad stuff maybe a don't be evil rule yeah, do you think that like a lot of these like old old school like institutions like Chase and uh, you know some of these you know Wells Fargo type institutions would want crypto around or do you think that they're just like this this has got to go because we've been in this game forever and it seems like they might be a little threatened potentially. I mean, is my take. I don't know if I'm reading into things. Yeah, I mean like anything nothing's that simple. I mean that many of these old school institutions are now heavily involved in the crypto game because they can make money out of it. And you get people like, you know, JP Morgan, Jamie Diamond saying, you know, that crypto is evil. 
and then actually offering services to their customers in the space because that's what their customers want. Sure. So uh, it's very hard to say. It's even thing, you know, things like will DeFi or, or even not even DeFi, but just sort of um, fintech startups make, make banks go out of business. Maybe, but banks also, like any incumbents, have a lot of resources and can actually sort of co-opt people, stop people. Um, at the moment, we're in New Zealand, we're sort of trying to work through what people generally call open banking, which is to allow people, businesses to access your bank information, which obviously makes it easier to, with your permission, to, you know, make payments or, you know, learn more about your habits or provide you services. And at the moment in New Zealand, we're adopting a sort of a, a industry-led approach where the government is saying to banks, come on, guys, you really need to open up and let other people access your information. And the banks are sort of saying, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do that <laughs> any day now. <laughs> so it is quite, you know, it's hard to know how hard to push in order to get things to actually happen. Sure. For the last couple of minutes, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that Francis Hogan, Hogan um, Facebook uh, meta dilemma. I know that you're at that particular keynote as well. So I'm just curious, what did you gather from, from that talk? Like what were some of your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I, I certainly applaud what she has done in order to, to actually bring these issues out into the open along with others. I mean, you know, the, what is it? The, the social dilemma documentary on Netflix, we're all learning more how this works. There are certainly decisions that are made in order to make more money at these large corporations, which if they would just do something slightly different, would probably have better outcomes for actual people at the end of the day. And, mm -hmm. you know, as the father of, of teenagers, it's very hard to actually get people to, to understand um, what people do with uh, your data and information. And we are all guilty of trading off convenience against sovereignty over our own data and actually when you realize how powerful that data is and how much the algorithms know about you and can predict your behavior then it's, it's you have to stop and think on the other hand these these entities are entities that need that are the ones with the power to actually make positive change and make things happen so you can't just sort of demonize them so we've had in, in New Zealand for example after um, we had the Christchurch mosque shootings a couple of years back our prime minister created and led something called the Christchurch call which is about sort of encouraging social media platforms to actually find ways for technology to prevent the spread of misinformation harmful practices and 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 deal with communities online it's these these are really potent forces that need to be um managed but if you just, you can't just ban it because it will pop up somewhere else. Yeah, that was fascinating. What I gather part of the conversation too is sometimes like if you're searching for weird things online, like for example, like in America, if you're searching for like yep. Q QAnon or whatever, and then all of a sudden like Facebook starts serving you other stuff related to this cult for, if you will, of, you know, and then you end up in a rabbit hole and disconnected from your family. So it's interesting like how, like, I don't think that obviously like Facebook, I don't know if they necessarily... It sounded like she was saying that they do take profit sometimes over like safety from what I remember from her talk. But I also feel like uh, 
the, the algorithms itself, it's not like that's what they're designed to do. They're designed to show you like more of what you were looking for in the past. So it kind of makes sense that that's how they would serve it. But it definitely looks like something that like it would be interesting if we could see more into like how they actually work, the actual algorithms. And like if we didn't want yeah. something to like not to not have it served to us so constantly. Yeah. So and, you know, who's to are we to blame because we searched for things and created and created the, the way the algorithm reacts to us. But then our algorithms, you know, are tricky things. And there's been a lot of research around racial bias and other, other things in terms of how they work. Um, they're, they're dangerous, dangerous tools, and they need to be moderated by, by decent human interactions. And I think what Francis Haugen's um, main point was, was not a, a you know, complete denunciation of the way Facebook does business because she worked there for a number of years. But it was specifically that when presented with an alternative to say, we can, we can do something here which will prevent these social problems over here. And it will mean that there is an impact on um, profits of dollars X. When presented with that situation, Facebook was too often choosing the, no, let's not prevent the social problem in order to make the extra dollars. And when you present it as sort of uh, bluntly as that, then yeah, that does seem to be a problem. But as the uh, and the solution is tricky because as any economist or even lawyer will tell you, who does who does Facebook owe its duties to? Is it to its shareholders to maximize profit, or is it to all of the stakeholders in the wider community for that business? That's why you know we really have to evolve models of corporate governance and otherwise that if you want those social outcomes to be better. Um, somehow encourage big corporations and small corporations to in some cases put social impacts over profits yeah a hundred percent i thought that's that's gonna be really interesting too to see if like some of these like decentralized social networks come up i know that jack dorsey i think is working on one and it'd be interesting to see if like there is like a different way of like monetizing these things instead of like uh, advertising. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but I, I think that it'll change the way those algorithms work. But I, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, but the, the, we definitely need a better answer, but you are asking people to turn off the machine that prints the money. A hundred percent. Well, um, that was a fascinating conversation, Jeremy. I appreciate the time. Thank you for coming on the show. If uh, people want to reach out, should they reach out to you on LinkedIn if they, I guess, want to hire yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I'm pro probably, probably the most accessible on LinkedIn. But if you, you know, Google Jeremy Muir, Minter Allison or Minter, you'll probably get me or just look me up on LinkedIn. I'm always keen to make new connections. Um, you know, if you're doing any of this sort of business and want to reach out or extend to New Zealand or Australia, then we can certainly help. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Really good to talk. It was a fascinating conversation. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you enjoyed that interview with me and Jeremy. I thought it was really fascinating, really good guy, and seems like he does some really interesting work as a lawyer over in Auckland, New Zealand. 3PL Systems is actually having a event with Cargo Chief for finding capacity next week if you are in the transportation management software space at 12 p.m. Pacific time. Cargo Chief just helps carriers find essentially more or brokers find more capacity for truckload shipments using machine learning and ai anyways if you enjoy the podcast please rate us on spotify apple we appreciate the support and any time that you send us to one of your friends we appreciate that as well take care